she used to ask us a lot of questions like how does your husband let you travel or you work and how how does that work and how does karachi work and it, it opened up her window a little bit about the possibilities that exist for women in pakistan hello everyone and welcome to the on assignment podcast that takes you behind the scenes of great broadcast online and documentary journalism here at Columbia Journalism School, the kind that we honor at the DuPont Awards. I'm Abby Wright, and I'm here with my co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Today, we are lucky to hear from one of our recent DuPont winners. This journalist traveled all the way from Pakistan to accept her award, and then while she was here, we figured we should just keep her here to show her work to our students. So the next night, we had a screening for Film Fridays. Yes, our guest today is Charmaine Obeid Chinoy, the multiple award-winning director who spoke to us about her film, A Girl in the River, which besides winning this year's DuPont, also won an Oscar last year for Best Short Documentary. Right. It's, uh, it tells the story of a young woman who survived an honor killing, which is very unusual. Uh, Saba is the main character, and she was shot by her uncle and her father when they put her in a bag and they dumped her in the river but she survived and lived to tell the tale. The story sets out all the backstory, but then it, it, they follow her and it takes this unexpected turn because she chooses to forgive her perpetrators. Pakistan is at a moment right now where it's really undergoing a lot of change with regards to women's rights. And this story, Saba's story, which got a tremendous amount of attention there, really moved the conversation forward on so-called femicide, killing women, and the idea of forgiveness. And to me, it's a, it's a terrific example of taking a big global issue and showing it as a personal narrative, which is always so much more impactful. Um, and it, I was very impressed with how it avoided the pitfalls of a lot of advocacy work, because Charmaine says that she's an advocate as well as a journalist. But a lot of advocacy work only lets you hear from one side of the story. And in this case, she got into the prison where they were holding the father and the uncle and got these astonishing interviews with them. So we really got a sense of what their defense was, which on the one hand seems completely warped and indefensible, but at the same time, it really helped me understand the cultural in underpinnings behind their defense. In these polarized times, you know, everywhere around the world, right. it's especially impressive that she was able to put forth all these different points of view and help all of us understand different perspectives. Right. It didn't it didn't make me forgive them myself, but it made me understand a little bit better. Yeah. So let's get to our conversation with Charmaine, but I do want to mention that at the end of the podcast, you and I are going to have a short conversation about um, something that was in the news in mid-February, the verdict in the Aton Pates murder trial. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. A case that you know a lot about, a, an almost 40-year-old murder case. So um, we're going to be talking about that at the end of the podcast. Okay. So let's get to Charmaine Obeid Chinoy in conversation with our professor, Betsy West, at the screening of her film, A Girl in the River. This is an edited version of their conversation. I want to ask you a lot of questions about the making of this film, but actually, first, just to start uh, with the aftermath of the film, because it's it's pretty dramatic what happened. I know so many filmmakers want to make a difference. This film did make a difference. So just tell us what happened in the in the past year or so. 
Thank you so much for coming out and watching the film. So uh, the power of the Academy Awards uh, is that when this film was nominated, uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan issued a statement uh, saying that uh, he wanted uh, to have the first screening of the film at the Prime Minister's office. Uh, and so this announcement was made and I went up to see the Prime Minister in Islamabad and we had a long talk about honor killings and he said, we must do something about it. And so just before I went out to the Academy Awards last year, we had the first screening of the film at the Prime Minister's office. And it's the first time the Prime Minister's ever seen any film uh, while in office and him and his cabinet were moved and he made this speech about how there is no honor in honor killing. And um, there was a piece of legislation. Um, it had passed through Senate, but had stalled in Parliament. And the law basically closed uh, the lacuna and made it impossible for forgiveness in cases of honor killings. That law had been stuck in Parliament for well over a year. When the film was nominated, the Prime Minister made the speech. Um, it was sped through, and it passed in October. Um, and so now. So, so now um, it makes forgiveness very difficult in uh, honor killing. Has it made a difference already, do you think? It has made a little bit of difference. So even in the last two, two and a half months, uh, there have been many cases where uh, men have been sent to jail uh, for killing family members, female family members, two that I have myself come across, uh, and I'm sure there are numerous others. Of course, it goes without saying that the law is just one component of what needs to be done, but at least it's a first step, and it sends a very powerful message that um, you cannot get away with murder, and that there is no such thing as honor killing, it is really murder. So uh, you've been making films for 15 years, uh, won two Oscars, now two DuPont Awards. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how, how you came onto the subject of honor killings and how you, went how you approach making this film. Um, I have been wanting to make a film about honor killings uh, for a number of years. Um, in fact, this was my third attempt to make a film about honor killings. The first two times we tried, uh, we tried telling it from the perspective of a family that was mourning uh, somebody who had been killed. But very quickly we realized that the only effective way to tell the story was to tell it through uh, the eyes of a survivor. Unfortunately, in uh, more than 90% uh, of cases in honor killings, uh, the women do not survive. Uh, so it became very hard to find a survivor. Uh, Saba was, uh, you know, uh, a, it just, it was a miracle that we found her, to be honest, because uh, I was reading the newspaper one morning and there were literally two lines in the newspaper that said that a young woman had been shot and thrown in a river in what appeared to be an attempted honor killing. And I remember reading it early in the morning, taking a, a photograph of it from my phone, sending it to my team and saying, find this girl. We had no idea where she was. And that whole day, my co-producer, Haya, was absolutely brilliant. Um, and Asad, who was my DP on this, uh, spent the day finding uh, this young woman. She finally located her in a small hospital uh, in the province of Punjab. We called the man. 
uh, at the hospital, uh, the head of the hospital, who um, very fortunately knew of my work and said that he was a feminist when he spoke to me on the phone. He said, I have daughters of my own and, and I'm a feminist and you must come to, to the hospital. And so um, we literally arrived a couple of days after, about 48 hours after, and um, the hospital gave us unprecedented access and um, Saba was made for television. She was directing us on day one on who we should speak to, what we should do, um, and, and how we should film her, which side worked well, which side didn't work well. And so really, I don't know whether I, we directed her or she directed us. And how about access to the other side of the story? How, how, did, how did you do that? You know, um, it was very important for me to include the perspective of her father and her uncle because for one second we should all think about the choices we all make in life. We make choices because of what we've been taught, our circumstances, how society has groomed us. And for her father and her uncle, this is life as they know it. You cross a line, there is retribution, and society puts a lot of pressure on you. Um, and, and it truly is the fault of society and the laws as well. And so right there and then, I thought it was important to include their perspective. And the thought they were perfectly happy to talk to you? I think, you know, the, the thing is that they believed very strongly. That's their ideology. They, they, they really believed what they did was right. And so they wanted to share what they did. They were very open with us when we began filming them. Um, I mean, you said you wanted to make a story about honor killing for a long time. What story did you think you were making about Saba? How did, how did the story change over time? Um, initially, we were sure that Saba was going to fight the case and win um, because she was so determined to fight the case. Um, and uh, so, you know, through the whole first half of the film, um, as it's happening in real time, we're pretty sure that Saba is going to fight and, and she's taking it headstrong that she, she might actually you know, win, because they have been arrested, the police are on her side, she has a strong lawyer. But as we realized when society began pressuring her, and when she did finally say that she wanted to forgive, many of us in the crew were, were very upset about it, because, you know, we, we thought this was going to be the story of, of the woman who won. But actually, had she fought and won, that would have been the anomaly. The fact that she didn't fight, and the fact that she gave in to society, that's what real life is like. And that's why she inspired a prime minister. She inspired people to think about her story. I think that that's very important. I mean, the, the, the most important thing about all of this um, with, with Saba was that, you know, when she was telling her story, she was very clear, even in early on in the film, what's happened to me shouldn't happen to someone else. Um, talk a little bit about the editing process, I mean, and also the decision to make this a short documentary as opposed to a long. Did you kind of weigh that and think, oh, maybe we'll make this longer? Or? Um, the idea was to always make it a short documentary was, film. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the editing process was... When we were first making the film, you know, obviously the, the nature of the film changed when she forgave. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how we would end the film. I mean, she forgave, but we didn't want the film to, to, because there's a lot of nuances in the film. Her saying that she wants to have a daughter, despite all that's happened to her, is a very positive thing. And um, because it, it really showed that she 
felt that a strong woman could overcome the system. And, and that's something we wanted to end with. We wanted to end with the hope. And she does have a daughter now. So, so yeah. And actually, a donor has come forward and is going to educate the daughter uh, for, for, uh, until she goes to, well, he said till high school. So let's see. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, these are really important things. And one of the, the things about Sabah was that she was really, she comes from Pakistan. And, and I come from Pakistan, and, and the women who work with me come from Pakistan, but she used to ask us a lot of questions, like, Did your, how does your husband let you travel? Or you work, and how, how does that work? And how does Karachi work? And, and you know, she had all of these questions for us, and as she spent time with us and saw us, I think it allowed, it, it opened up her window a little bit about the possibilities that exist for women in Pakistan. Um, I want to open it up to other questions, but before I do, I'm sure people would like to know, how, to, how did you become a filmmaker? How did this happen? What, what inspired you to, to do this? Um, I'm an accidental filmmaker. I've never studied film. Um, I've studied economics and political science. All our documentary and, and, students yes. are really happy to and, hear that. And <laughs> I've, I, I did a mass, I, my master's is, is in international relations and journalism. Um, but I, I wanted to do visual, something visual. And I've been writing for newspapers since I was 14 years old. And the, that something visual happened one day when I typed into what at that time was Yahoo, um, uh, you know, visual journalism. And this word documentary popped up. It was early 2001. And and uh, I said, right, that's what I want to do. And I taught myself everything that I know, literally off the internet and being in the field. So, yeah. All right. So Though I do think that a, a degree in documentary filmmaking would have been very useful. <laughs> Hi, Shameen. Uh, so there was a very small section in Pakistan um, because of which you had to face a backlash. And their criticism was that you were projecting an image of Pakistan which to them, quote-unquote, was negative. Um, I want to know how demoralizing that is for you as a filmmaker, also as the only Oscar winner out of Pakistan. It's not demoralizing for me at all. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the thing is that whenever you try and push against the grain or, or when you try and start difficult conversations, there is bound to be some sort of backlash. That backlash doesn't only exist in Pakistan. It exists in many different countries, including this one right here. And so, you know, being popular was never my thing. I don't care about being popular. I care about my work making a difference. So before... Uh, a Girl in the River came out, honor killings was never discussed on the nightly news. It, you almost never found it, ever. Even if the most gruesome of honor killings happened. But the minute this film was nominated for an Academy Award, every single television channel was talking about honor killings. I have a friend who works at Dawn News, which is a, 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 a television channel, who's, who called me up one day and said, I can't believe that my producer has asked me to do a two-hour special on honor killings at 8 p.m. <laughs> He's like, that never happens. And so th the thing is that if a film can inspire people to, to, to create awareness, to do shows, then my work is done. Hi. Um, my question was about when you guys were producing this film, were you worried about um, Sabah's safety? And how did you guys go about that? So um, we were very clear from the start um, with Saba and her family that that it was a documentary film that was going to get shown around the world and 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 um, all of that. And Saba's husband, who we were most concerned about, like whether he would be a willing participant, he was. Um, and the entire family gave us extremely good access. They wanted the story told, and so that's 
I think that was part and parcel of it. Uh, you know, there's so much, the proliferation of media in Pakistan is so high. I mean, there's so many television channels. Everyone's become so media savvy. Uh, the cameras are everywhere. Uh, that I think is no longer a novelty per se. Um, and, uh, you know, Sabah is one person who's spoken out, but, you know, some, every day in the headlines, there are so many young women who are victims who do speak out. Hi, you mentioned um, her husband, and we meet him at the beginning of the film, but then he kind of drops out, and I wondered, I was just, I was so curious, how did he take to all of this, and did he have second thoughts, and did he have traditional thoughts, or was he completely supportive? Well, Kaiser was just in love with Sabah. I mean, you just see him at the very beginning of the film, the way he's talking to her the way he's he's gently kind of you know sitting with her even in that one moment in the film which is my favorite moment when she's putting on this thing on it on his hand and then he's he takes a photograph with his cell phone you know it's such a point like it's amazing love story between the two um you know he was just not articulate at all uh, and as a filmmaker as a filmmaker you know you try very hard to 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 uh, listen the only time he he lit up was when he was with saba alone he just he was just not good and so we just let him be good where he was good <laughs> and what's been the aftermath of this film for him and for the family for saba she's had like an outpouring of you know, when the film came out, uh, Nicholas Kristof wrote an article and then like like a fund was set up for Sabah and the money started pouring in um, from around the world. So enough money came in that a piece of land was bought, a house was built. Um, it was all in her name, a small house, but enough for her. For, for a woman to own a house in that area, it is like she's a princess. Like it is very rare. It's very, very rare. Um, and, um, so, so, you know, education fund set up for her kids. She's two kids. She had a son and a daughter very quick. Uh, and, uh, then uh, for the father and the uncle, um, it became a problem for them because Saba sort of became revered in her, in her neighborhood and people were talking about it, especially after the Academy Award and the father and the uncle tried um, to harass her in-laws and her. And when they did, they were arrested. And now they're serving time in jail for harassment. Um, so they, I guess, you know, they didn't go to jail for attempting to murder, but eventually ended up in jail for harassment. They're serving a two-year sentence. I wanted to go back to the point about um, where you showed the father and the uncle's um, views. You said that the film has been screened in different schools across Pakistan. Did you ever worry um, that there might be um, children in the system who have grown up with these values and for them it might, those values might be reinforced seeing these men talk about so confidently and, and you know there's no remorse in the end for the father anyway. Um, do, was that ever a concern that it might reinforce those values for the children? So the only time we've allowed the film to be screened is when there has been a facilitated dialogue after the film screening so actually we have two dedicated members from our team that travel with the film look um the film has been screened in many places one particular university where it was screened in peshawar at the university there's a big art there were a couple of articles written about this in pakistan as well that on on one side of the room sat all the girls and on another side sat all the boys and the girls cheered on saba and the boys cheered on the father and the uncle but the girls kept cheering on saba and during the facilitated dialogue there was a lot of heated exchanges and there were you know it this is it's a sign of a democracy where you have people 
talk about the different issues that, that there are. And there were a number of young men who did get up and say that this is the first time we've heard what a woman has to go through. It's the first time we've actually seen what a woman has to go through. So, you know, changing mindsets is not easy. Um, it'll take a long time. We have to take baby steps and, and see where it goes. Uh, but we have tried our best to uh, show um, both sides of the story because I think it is important to also see the context of the father and the uncle. Hi. Have you um, done or do you plan to screen the film in Muslim communities outside of Pakistan where honor killings are becoming more prevalent in recent years? I've been asked to screen the film in the UK. Um, uh, especially in communities, uh, the, 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 the British government has asked me very recently and I'm going to be giving them the film uh, to, to screen it uh, in the UK. Hi, I know. Um, thank you so much. This was really great. And I had a question because I know Pakistan has recently been in the news about Kandil Baloch and what happened to her. And there was uh, kind of the way that the media reported on her story and her personality. And they kind of, you know, used a lot of derogatory terms. And so I wanted to know about, like, how do you think the media can change how they talk about honor killing? Because there was a lot of debate and dialogue around this word honor killing because there's no honor in it. Yeah. Explain what this uh, look, incident um, is. Uh, okay, yeah, Kandil Baloch was a social media star in Pakistan and she was murdered by her brother um, in an honor killing because apparently she had shamed the family. Um, it's interesting to see uh, what press in Pakistan and the way it reported the death of Kandil Baloch, the English language press reported it very differently from the vernacular Urdu language press, and um, in in and there were there were a lot of people, a lot of activists who spoke out in favor of Kandil Baloch, but but of course our media in, in Pakistan uh, needs training desperately, um, and there were there were many many anchors unfortunately who. Uh, shouldn't really be journalists, but, uh, and, and, and they get away with saying a lot of things on television. Um, so the character of women is always something that's in question, um, not just in Pakistan, but in many, many countries around the world. And it's used as a justification in some way. Um, she deserved to be raped. Look at what clothes she was wearing. This is what she did. So she deserved this. It's a lot of that kind of, uh, language that is used. Um, and so, you know, of course, there are a lot of people that fall prey to that. Um, having said that, um, I think that in the Kandil Baloch case, especially, the state came out very powerfully. They arrested the brother. Uh, they became a party to the case so that there could be no forgiveness. You know, there was a lot of steps that were taken uh, that I think sent a signal that this is completely uh, not on. Um, Again, as I've said, like it's not going to change overnight. Um, I tend to want to look at the more positive aspects of the things that that the state is also doing to send a send a light. But also, but also the fact that activists are pushing and and saying that you know this is not going to happen on our watch. With Kandil Baloch, there were lots of small protests that were hel held uh, in the country by young activists, and you know I, I think social media plays a big role in Pakistan. Um, in making people more educated um, or less educated about issues. And so with Kandil Baloch, it, it became a very big phenomena in the country. And a lot of people uh, want to see that case get to justice. Let's take one more. Hi, thanks so much for being here. I was just, um, I was wondering, the involvement of the uncle, like initially is kind of 
what sparked it, right? Because um, her father agreed to the marriage, mm-hmm. uh, and I, just the presence of the uncle was very strong. Is that common in um, in situations like this, where sort of ex- extended family drive the decision? common, very common? Is he the older brother? He's the younger brother. Okay, um, and it is common. Uh, you do have other family members, oftentimes pressure. Uh, the family to make certain decisions. Um, you know, you see it a lot in Pakistan, and you see it in in a number of other countries um, that uh, family plays a, gr- a great role. So, you know, even if, even if, and I do personally think that Sabah's father may have hesitated initially a little bit, but the uncle was very forceful and and pushed it through, and very cleverly then decided that he had nothing to do with it. So, yeah. You got you got that vibe when you interviewed. When yes, you interviewed of course. Him. He's like, yeah. yeah, he was totally like, and and you know, Saba's mother had told us that the uncle had played a role, and and all of that stuff. But the uncle was just having nothing to do with it. But he was the one who apologized to Saba. If if you're following on early in the film, and Saba says, well, the greatest thing about the film is that like the the, the father and the uncle is that two days before. They had told me that well, we are want to spend their entire lives in jail, yeah. and then like t- three days later, he's begging Sabah that forgive us. <laughs> Clearly, three days in jail was not enough. So, yeah. Well, I I just want to thank you so much and invite you to come back with your next film or Song of Lahore, which we still haven't seen, which is a fantastic film. So if you're back in New York, we'd love to arrange for a film Friday. I'd love to bring Song of Lahore. Yeah, Song of Lahore is wonderful. Thank and thank you so, so much, thank Charmaine. You. Thank you. We definitely should have Charmaine come back again. I remember when she was here in 2009, actually, the first time she won a DuPont and she was just as much of a powerhouse then as she is now. She's like a force of nature. It's really, it's so inspiring for our students, many of whom, most of whom are women, but just generally. All right, so there was a verdict the other day in an almost 40-year murder case here in Lower Manhattan, and it happens to be a story that you know a lot about, Lisa. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Aton Pates case and your book, After Aton, about it. Well, it started, the case began in 1979 when this six-year-old boy was kidnapped on his way to school, or he disappeared, and he was never found. And I haven't been covering it since then. I was way too young for that. But uh, I probably about the last 25 years, because I did stories for it at first at ABC News and then at CBS News, and um, wrote this book after Aton, which talked about the case up until the point that I wrote the book, and also about the culture change that happened uh, after this story, and spent a lot of time with the family. And then the book came out in 2009, and in 2012, there was a, a new sort of heretofore completely unknown suspect who emerged, and Two years ago, he went on trial, and there was a hung jury, and then he went back on trial over the last three months, and yesterday the jury convicted him. They convicted him on uh, charges of murder and kidnapping. Right, based on his confessions, his repeated confessions. Yes. So why do we all know this case so well, or why does it seem so familiar to many of us? Well, it's somewhat iconic. I mean, this was the case that I, I called the the book after Aton 
it's sort of got two meanings. And one of them is that before Eitan, we all, you know, our kids came home from school after school, they disappeared and we found them at dinner time. And there was no sense of concern about where they were and how accountable they were. And after Eitan, all of that changed. And it really was the beginning of this cultural shift where we became completely obsessed with where our kids were and how safe they were. Was Eitan really the first child to be placed on a milk carton? No. And that's that's somewhat of a myth. Um, sometimes Set I... Set us straight. Yeah, no. Well, sometimes I contact people and say, just so you know, you might want to change this. But it the milk cartons grew out of the cultural shift that occurred around the time he disappeared. There was a movement. Eitan's parents were part of it, but others were too. And in the mid-80s, which was several years after he disappeared, these milk cartons started. His, his picture was on it. But not, he certainly wasn't the first. You know the Pates family well. What has their reaction been to the verdict? Um, my relationship is mostly with Stan Pates, Eitan's father, who appeared in the 60 Minutes piece that I did um, and was a main source, very prominent in the book. You know, he he's happy. I mean, as happy as you can be. I think he feels a real validation because for him... He's he's felt very strongly that this man, whose name is Pedro Hernandez, was actually the man who killed his son. And he's felt that way because of the first trial and subsequent information that he's learned, you know, that came out in trial. Um, and now the law has told him. How did this even come to light, that this defendant? He came for, he, he brought himself to police, right? No, actually, he uh, had a brother-in-law and the brother-in-law over the years had heard things and felt that this was, you know, that his brother was involved. And the brother-in-law contacted authorities, but there was no traction because, like, millions of people would come forward and say, you know, I saw Eitan in New Jersey. I know who the killer is. Um, but there was an event in 2012 where authorities were doing some very public searching. They dug up a basement in Soho. And the brother-in-law saw that. There was a lot of publicity around it. And he said, I'm going to try again to bring my suspicions to light. And he called missing persons and the people there. He happened to get the people who took him seriously. So that digging up of the basement in Soho, which I remember, that was completely unrelated to Pedro Hernandez? Yeah, completely unrelated. It was about somebody else altogether. All the twists and turns of this case. It's yeah. Remarkable. I, I, I will say that one thing that is so striking to me is that this case is over 37 years old. And every step of the way, there's been a turn or a twist that has led to the next step. And so in some ways, you can blame a lot of people for not getting to the solution earlier. But in other ways, you know, there was there's a way in which everything kind of led to the next thing until we got this outcome. A culmination of events. Yes. So, Lisa, help me understand why this guy was convicted. There's no physical evidence connecting him to Aton, and he has a history of mental, mental illness. So it's a little confusing. So I think that the jury was instructed by the judge that if they felt that they could believe his multiple confessions, and the totality of those confessions stretched far back. So there were versions of the confession that happened long before the police arrested him. They varied slightly. Um, and and if they believed all those confessions, then they could, in fact, convict him. And they didn't feel that the defense 
created reasonable doubt in the case that they presented. That's incredible. Is this the end of this case now? Is this closure on the Aton Pates case? I really hate the word closure. I really do. And I think I think Stan Pates feels the same way. I think you go through something like this and there's no there's no closure in the real sense, but uh, I think there's a real sense of we know what happened, he's been judged, and hopefully some peace and moving forward. But, you know, the defense attorney immediately said they plan to appeal or they will probably plan to appeal. Right. So. Well, now I just want to shamelessly flack your book, Lisa. <laughs> so go, right ahead. go to Amazon now and buy After Aton by Lisa Cohen to learn more about this riveting case that has stayed with us all these years. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's 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 been as I said before, it's been a long time coming and I'm I'm happy that the family, you know, has gotten some resolution to all this. Great. Thank you. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you from the DuPont Awards at the Columbia Journalism School with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. This episode was produced by J-School grad Chava Gurari. Our music is by Dylan Nowick, and our sound engineer is Shep Burkhan. A big thank you to our DuPont student fellows, Val Caval, Kim Flores, and Meg Dalton, and to Millie Christy Derveaux. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and find us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share us with your friends. We'll be back with another episode of On Assignment in two weeks. Bye, Abby. Bye-bye, Lisa. Bye-bye, Lisa.